I want to begin, uh, before I start and launch into the message, I want to read a passage of Scripture that I, uh, I, I believe ties into what we're saying today, and it's one of my favorites. It's from uh, Matthew 11, Jesus' words, and Matthew 28, <laughs> excuse me, 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, baseball season is in full swing. Uh, the, the majors are about a quarter way through the season or so, maybe a little over that. And uh, wherever you drive around town, you'll see uh, all the way from kids through high schoolers been playing for several weeks now. And uh, maybe, maybe you grew up playing baseball or softball. If you're like me, when I drive past, it kind of takes me back to watch my own kids play, but also when I played. And, and I played small town baseball. I wasn't anything really special, but, 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 I, but I had a pretty good arm. I mean, I was good enough, uh, good enough arm and accurate enough that I played catcher and I also, also pitched. And uh, one thing that I uh, took pride in is that I, I didn't get tired. I could throw all day and it never seemed to affect me. One spring, though, I made the mistake of of going too hard and too soon, too fast. I didn't do long toss. I didn't, I didn't stretch. Uh, I just jumped in throwing hard, and I, bur- I burned my arm out. I had what's you know, called dead arm. Uh, the arm felt good, but when I went to throw, it just didn't have the same pop, and I just couldn't throw as long. And, and I'd try harder, but it just got worse. There wasn't any damage, thankfully, but it just suddenly and simply, I suddenly lacked the ability to throw as hard or as long. You ever have an experience like that, you know, playing, playing baseball or, or softball, ever you know, burn your arm out? What about, what about in life? You ever go too hard, too fast, too soon, too long, and, and you wake up one morning and you discover that you just can't do what you could do before? Uh, you don't have the capacity anymore. You, you don't have as much patience with the kids. It wears thin. You, you get ir- easily irritated by your, by your spouse. You have a hard time maybe staying focused at work as long and as well as you used to. You, even spiritually, you pray and it, you know, it feels kind of rote. I threw my arm out in baseball and eventually it came back. But what do you do when you, when you deplete yourself of your energy, your emotions, your strength? In other words, what do you do when you, what do you do when you experience or approach burnout? According to a, a 2021 survey, over half of Americans said that they felt some degree of burnout. Now, that was towards the end or maybe the height of the pandemic. It kind of runs together for me. But I'm sure numbers haven't gone down. In fact, they probably have, have gone up some. And the symptoms that people experienced were things like uh, lack of energy, lack of motivation, their emotional reserves were down, and most concerningly is that they lacked any hope that it was going to get better. Maybe, maybe that has described you at some point in your past. Maybe, maybe it describes you even, even this morning. So what do you do when you approach or experience burnout? We're, con- we're concluding our sermon series we kicked off a few weeks back called Peace of Mind. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at a few different aspects or issues, topics regarding to concern to, uh, to uh, mental health. Uh, and we're doing this because it's a, it's a big issue, not only in society, but also in, in Christian circles. We're not, we're not immune to that. And uh, we've looked at anxiety. We've looked at depression. We've looked at uh, worry. We've looked at negative thoughts, the patterns we can get stuck in. And today we're going to focus on, on, on burnout, perhaps something that, 
uh, more of us can ex- more of us experience than any other issue, perhaps, because our, our world is so crazy busy. We just go, 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 go. And then we end the, we reach the end of our rope and then we just have nothing left. And we're going to look at a story of a, of, a, of a man in the Bible who was at the height of his ministry, very successful, and it all just turned and he reached the end of his rope. It's found in the Old Testament in the book of First Kings, chapters 18 and 19. And we're going to start with verse, verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, you'd think that this was a message that that Elijah was excited to deliver because apparently there was a famine, there was a drought, things were drying up. People would have been struggled to provide for their families and their livestock. And and, and, and and God comes to him and says, Go to Ahab, who is the king, and tell him, I'm going to send rain. But if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that over and over and over again, prophets, um, they have a pretty difficult life. More often than not, um, they are on the run or they're being beaten or they're being rejected or sometimes even killed. Uh, it, was, it took a lot out of you to be a prophet, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so was the case for Elijah. And here, as he's sent to God by God to see Ahab, the, the king, the king is not going to be re- real receptive, perhaps, to his message because Ahab, as we see, as we look through, read through this book, he is a king who is ruling and living in a way that's in direct opposition to God. And, and, and he's married to a queen who maybe is even worse. We recognize her name more than Ahab, Jezebel. In fact, we read in verse 4 that uh, Jezebel has killed off hundreds of the prophets of God. She did not want to hear their message. She just wanted them eliminated. And so you can imagine the, the tension that Elijah must have felt as he was going to see Ahab. I mean, it'd be like if, I mean, we all have had, had you know, hard conversations at times in our past. You go to somebody uh, in your family or a coworker or a friend and you kind of say, hey, we've got to work through this issue. And that creates a little bit of anxiety or tension, right? But can you imagine if it was somebody, you had to have that kind of conversation with somebody that you knew actively despised you, disliked you, had threatened you physically. That would be a tough conversation to have. Well, multiply that many times here for Elijah. But, as we see throughout Scripture, as Jesus told us, sometimes following God means doing something that's hard. And sometimes it means doing something that's not going to be well received. And so Elijah obeys and he arranges the meeting, meeting with Ahab. Pick it up in verse 16. Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Astra who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is, this is like a high-stakes poker game. And Elijah, he, he knows there's a law on the line, so he pushes all of his chips into the middle of the table. It's like, a, like an old western where two gunslingers arrange to meet at high noon on, on Main Street. One's going to walk away, we know, and one will not. 
And what are the stakes that, that's on the line? Well, it's whose God is real. Whose God reigns. And so the 850 prophets who Ahab and Jezebel support, they show up. So does Elijah. And um, Elijah says, you guys go first. And so the prophets of, 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 of um, Asherah and, and Baal, they, they build altar. They, they, they put on the wood. They put on the sacrifice. And they, they dance and they sing and they pray and they throw themselves on the ground. They cut themselves. Anything to try to get Baal to respond, to do something. But nothing comes from for them. And finally, they give up. And Elijah says, it's my turn. And he ups the ante even more because he builds the, the, the altar. He puts on the wood. He puts on the sacrifice. But then he pours on gallons of water. And then he says in front of all the people and prophets and Ahab, answer me, O Lord. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And fire falls from heaven and burns at the sacrifice and the altar and just for good measure, the water too. And it says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah's gamble, it pays off. And he wins big and he takes a big step of faith and, and God comes through. God delivers. That had to be an amazing moment for Elijah. Perhaps the, the pinnacle of his, of his ministry. I mean, I can't imagine what he was feeling. He delivers God's message to a tough crowd God shows up in a phenomenal way, and there's a massive revival. I mean, how cool is that? You know, staff, we get excited when, when one person comes to faith in, in Christ. Now, we, we, we get pumped when we see people take steps of faith to follow Jesus, more and more of Jesus. It's what fuels us. It's, you know, it's why we do what we do. But I can't imagine hundreds and thousands of people turning to God in this single moment. He must have been on cloud nine. I mean, think about a moment maybe in your life when you've had a, a big achievement, maybe at work or at school or in a personal life. You, you ace a test, you win a big game, you make a big sale, you get a promotion. Multiply that many times again. That's what Elijah must have you know, been feeling. How dramatic is that? Without a doubt, at that moment, he knew that God was with him, that God was for him, and he knew that with God anything was possible, which makes what happens next in chapter 19 so so surprising because there's a dramatic reversal, downturn in Elijah's emotions. Pick it up in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. In other words, it's my goal tomorrow, by the end of the day, for you to be dead. And Elijah hears this and says he was afraid and ran for his life. And he runs a long way until he reaches the desert and then he runs an extra day just to get more separation between him and Jezebel. And then he prays that he would die. Verse 4. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. You ever feel that way? I've had enough, God. I, I just, just, I'm done. I can't handle it. You know, I had a, I had a pastor friend who loved going on mission trips. He would get excited about it. He would look forward to it. He'd get into the research and the planning, and he always just thoroughly enjoyed going and seeing God work in incredible ways in his life and through the lives of the people around him. It just, it just pumped him up. 
But inevitably, whenever he returned, shortly thereafter, he'd have a, a letdown. Emotion. I guess it's like maybe when you go to a camp, you, get a, you come back on fire, but then you have a letdown eventually. And, and, and that's what happens with Elijah. A high point in ministry, followed by a major low point. I'm done. Just let me die. Isn't it strange how that happens sometimes in life? You know, we go through a big moment. We, we graduate. We, or we hit a milestone in life. We work hard, accomplish something, get a promotion. We take that big trip we've been looking forward to for so long. We buy that, that vehicle that we've always dreamed about, whatever it might be. And then there's that inevitable kind of drop, a letdown. Well, Elijah, he hits the wall here. He's drained physically, emotionally, spiritually, and he just simply wants out. But God is gracious, and God understands our frailty as human beings. Thank God for that. And so he sends an angel to provide food and water for him, and then he sends him on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, where he's going to encounter God. And as God always does, God meets Elijah where he's at. Not just not just geographically, but where he's at at his point of need. And, you know, one of the things that I, I do when I pray for people, because I figure God knows better what they need than I do. I mean, I pray through what they ask. I pray through what I think that they need. But then I always try to say, okay, God, meet them at their point of need, because he knows what they need more than I do. And, and God will always meet us at our point of need when we're ready and open. You know, where are you at today? What's your point of need? You know, we all have need. What's your point of need today? Where do you need God to, to meet you? Are you tired and, and drained? Your tank's empty almost? Are you worried and anxious about the future, about your, your kids or your aging parents? Are you worried about your health? Are you spiritually distant going through the motions and that concerns you? Or are you concerned that it doesn't concern you? Are you grieving the loss of a loved one or the loss of a dream? Wherever you are, God will... He will meet you at your point of need. And in verse 9, we see this. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God doesn't ask questions because he's looking for information. God knows the answer. He asks questions in the scripture. Why? So that we find out something about him, about ourselves, or about the world around us. So God knows what Elijah is doing here. And Elijah, he responds pretty honestly, pretty frankly, kind of raw, actually, with a complaint. And I'll paraphrase it. I followed you faithfully, Lord. I've done what you've asked me to do. And these people you've given to me, they will not listen to me. They, 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 they're, they're unfaithful. They're fickle. They, they do what they want. And, oh, God, by the way, they, they kill prophets. Do you know that? They kill prophets. And then he says in verse 10, I'm the only one left. Now their sights are turned on me. Now they're trying to kill me. So he's reached the bottom and he wants out. And he's, he lost perspective, which happens in burnout, because he, in fact, is not the only one left. And we're, we know that from chapter 18, there are hundreds still left. And then God reminds him, but later in this chapter, that there are 7,000 left who have not bent their knee to Baal, who are faithful to him. So he's not in this alone. But that's what burnout does. You lose motivation. Your tank is drained. You lose perspective. And Elijah needed to be reminded 
that God was still working, that God was not done with him, that he was not alone, that God was with him, but there were others as well. There are, you're never, ever truly alone. And then verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. And then I love this. There's this great and powerful wind that tears through the mountains, throwing around rocks and boulders. But it says God was not in the great wind. And then the earthquake comes and And we can just picture uh, that, you know, that Elijah would have had a hard time standing on his feet, probably knocked, had to pick himself up a few times. But it says God was not in the earthquake. And then the fire comes. You can see where this is heading, but God's not in the fire. And then, after the fire comes a gentle whisper, Elijah. And Elijah hears it and he pulls the cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You know, I was listening to a, a podcast this last week and the topic was, was slowing down. We all, need, we all know we need to slow down. We know that. But they were talking about how life goes by so fast and people run here and there and and we're simply not meant to operate at that speed, that, that intensity for that long. Eventually we're going to break down in some way. Or we'll just become numb in a sense, you know, kind of throw your, your arm out, throw your life out. You can still function, but just not the same. And one of the guests on the podcast termed a phrase to describe it. He, he said, we, we're, we're all in little hurricanes. We hurry here, we hurry there, we buzz about like bees. We generate a lot of force and activity but eventually we hit a wall and we have to stop. And what's left in the path of, a, of our own personal hurricane? There can be collateral damage in the lives of the people around us. A torn down life, a lack of energy. And then we have the daunting task of having to try to rebuild. How do you do that? Well, it happens only when we get off the train to busy town, right? And we slow down. We notice that Elijah... Again, he does not hear God in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. He hears him in the quiet with a gentle whisper, Elijah. He doesn't hear God clearly in a frantic schedule, but when he's alone with, with God. Have you found that to be true? You know, um, 19 years ago this month, our church moved from our location at Cloud and Roach to, to here. And um, at the time, uh, Dan was our lead pastor and I was an associate pastor, and six weeks after we moved in, he received a call, and he was gone six months after we moved in. And uh, there was an interim period of about 17 months, which is just crazy, as you can imagine, and then I became the lead pastor. And things didn't slow down. Three young kids at home. We had four different search committees operating, looking to fill positions, because you can't fill a position until you have a lead pastor. Uh, I was preaching most Sundays and leading worship, too. Um, we were understaffed. I didn't know what to do because I kept working. I did 16 weddings that first year and did all the premarital counseling, a lot of some funerals as well, and add in all the normal routines of life and ministry, and I hit a wall. Uh, and I knew my tank was low, but I didn't know what to do because we were understaffed. I mean, you know, what do you, what do, you do? I was raised on a farm. You keep working hard. You're one foot in front of the other, used to working long hours. So I just kept doing that. You don't complain, you tough it out, which serves a person well in a lot of instances of life, but, but sometimes, well, it's just, frankly, pride and you know, stupidity. And so, in a sense, I, I guess I started to throw my arm out. I could still function, but I didn't have the same you know, velocity or, or range or, or stamina or strength. And 
And so I knew I had to take some steps. I had to figure this out and couldn't do it on my own. So I talked to several friends in ministry and they said, well, you got to start with a ministry coach, which was a great thing. I found a ministry coach to help me process life and, and ministry and what was going on in my life and my heart and my spirit. And, and then I had regular phone calls with an accountability partner who made sure I was following through on my you know, good intentions. And then they, my, my ministry coach asked a really great question. So what, is, what fills your tank? What, what is life-giving to you? Um, usually people get in these situations because they stop doing the things that are life-giving. And I, I enjoy ministry. I enjoy my family. Those are life-giving. But, but there are other things that I kind of put to the side, and I began to think through that. Well, I, I love to be outside. I love time in nature. I love to exercise. I love to, to challenge my mind and to read, not just stuff for church and sermons, but to read broadly. And, and I love music. So I, I began to put those patterns back into my life, to be intentional about that. And, and through the ministry coaching and, and through those life-giving patterns and, you know, and, 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 and those sorts of things, my accountability partner and, and prayer and, and, and the Lord's grace, I began to regain, re, regain my energy and strength in God's voice became clearer. And, and what I heard, not audibly, of course, but what, I, what God impressed upon me was were, were two passages of Jesus' words. The first in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And think about it. A, a vine is, has a loose connection. A branch has loose connections to the vine. What happens? It's, it's lean. It's weak. It's withered. It doesn't produce much fruit. It kind of struggles to kind of sustain itself and to do something. And so I began to think about that. And what I heard was abide, remain, stay connected. That God be your strength. That God's living water that never runs dry fill you. Let Jesus, the bread of life, nourish you. Abide, remain. And the other passage that was impressed upon me were the words I began the message with, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do you, what do you do when you begin to reach the end of your rope? Maybe you are approaching or experiencing burnout and you just feel depleted. Your tank is almost empty. You're running on fumes. Well, you stop your hurricane, you get off the fast track, you ask for help because you're never alone. You, you put in place life-giving patterns. That's going to be different for a lot of us. And you abide in Jesus. And you, you come to Jesus. And I guarantee you, He will give you rest. You know, we concluded the sermon series today, and as I said, the title is Peace of Mind. And that's, that's the hope and prayer that I have for, for you, is, is that you'll grow in your peace. You'll grow in your, the peace that Jesus says He came to give, the peace that only He can give. He doesn't give as the world gives. He gives peace that is, is present despite the circumstances in your life. A peace that's based upon your relationship with Him. And, and another prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, said this in Isaiah chapter 26. He will keep in perfect peace. He whose mind is steadfast because He trusts 
in you. That's my hope and prayer, that you'll grow in your peace, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that Jesus Christ can give, the peace that the world cannot take away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful for your word and for your truth. Lord, we are grateful that you have designed us in such a way that that we operate and function the best when we are drawing our strength from you. Lord, you are our fuel. You are our oxygen. You are our life. So, Lord, help us to, in the midst of the busyness of life, to stop our hurricanes, to slow down, and to trust in you, to rest in you, to abide in you, to come to you. Lord, give us your peace of mind, your, your peace, your strength. Bring healing to each one of us and strength as we abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen.